You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Sophie Hackett, Susie Lake, and Georgiana Ulyarek tonight. This has been a long time coming. It's been uh, five years since uh, we started this. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you know, but it takes three curators to do a Susie Lake exhibition. <laughs> and uh, we used to be a triumvirate. It used to be Michelle Jakes, who is here tonight, but I can't see her. Is she? Did she? Was she able to get in? Because there's a long lineup outside of people, by the way, who couldn't get in. In any case, we want to very much acknowledge Michelle Jakes, who got away. She is now the chief curator at the Art Gallery of Greater Victoria, and it really was the three of us who accosted Matthew Teitelbaum in his office and said, it's Susie Lake time now. Excellent. <laughs> it's what <Yes>. happened. <laughs> it is what happened. Um, so thank you for joining us here tonight for this conversation with the fabulous Susie Lake. We're thrilled to have reached this stage in the process where we get to talk about a show and show you a show and show you a book. Um, so tonight we're going to um, work backwards, actually, from this point. Which my brother will tell you that that's the way I've done it all my life. <laughs> that's just a little behind the scenes of the making of Susie Lake's actually newest work. This is work we are premiering in the exhibition, one, one of which you see here on the screen uh, behind me. It's called Performing Haute Couture Number 1. <laughs> um, so my first question to you, Susie, is um, what, are you, what are you doing in that suit? Um, gee, like the, 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 the tricks that you have to go through to actually get a nice outfit, right? Um, uh, my friend Miguel um, Jacob actually introduced me to um, some of like the most interesting um, uh, high fashion um, where I could really see that it's more they're doing artwork as well as I'm doing artwork. And there are certain um, uh, designers whose work is not narrative and very architectural. And the fact that I actually, uh, well, when I was um, young and sweet, I, I had done mine. Um, but the architectural elements of the um, uh, garments actually just really begged uh, movement and and to be able to perform a movement really activating um, the garment. Uh, so in in Gautier um, number one, um, most of you being an art audience will recognize the um, idea of the cantilever. So this is a suit that's by Comme des Garçons. Um, the, you can see that it has huge sort of knots around the, the shoulder, uh, sorry, around the elbow, and that the pants, I love your description of the pants, they are 42 inches wide, and one uh, does them up by sort of folding one leg over the other. Um, certainly, certainly the, the knots at the sleeves actually put a focus on where the movement, in fact, would be. 
Are you being critical of the fashion industry with this kind of an image? Um, well, I'm certainly not uh, critical of, of um, uh, uh, the, the designer um, uh, whose garment I'm wearing. Uh, I think that I'm, I'm more taking a jab at um, media's representation of women and the fact that I'm an older woman, I don't fit the archetype of um, beauty. <laughs> Whoever said that, so thank you, thank you. <laughs> it only gets better. <laughs> So this is a work, you can see the date, 2001 to 2002. It's called Beauty at a Proper Distance in Song. What is not in, perhaps immediately evident in this slide is that these are light boxes, um, and you will see that you will confront them uh, as you walk into the exhibition on the fourth floor if you haven't already seen the show. Um, it, let's see. Yes, it is kind of evident that, uh, that I'm going to use your line again, Susie. The, the line that you uh, say about this is that I wanted to, I asked myself, and Susie's artwork often comes out of a question that she asks herself, what can I do that Britney Spears can't? And that is grow facial hair. Uh, <laughs> they are somewhat evident here. They are more evident live on the fourth floor, so I recommend that you see it. But what reaction were you hoping to generate with this work, Susie? Um, well, I, I mean, um, as I was watching all the recent fads and fashions um, at the turn of the century, you know, I, I was seeing my students getting pierced in very, very strange places um, to do very, very strange things, um, and, you know, all kinds of tattoos, and, um, you know, in, in the guise of beauty. Um, and yet, you know, there was such a resistance to the idea of a different beauty um, so, uh, I mean, of course that, you know, if you're other, it makes you angry. And I thought, oh, if I go into an advertising company and, um, you know, pay them a lot of money to make facial hair the newest fad, how would they do that? So I took my own advice. <laughs> and you lit it very brightly and you lit it with colored gels and you lit it up like an ad, right? Yes, I, I grew facial hair for three months. Um, I, I actually, you know, did things um, to my skin to, you know, to kind of exaggerate the pores and, you know, be as visceral as I possibly could. The interesting thing is the first um, iteration of this piece um, was in the vitrines at Gallery 44. Um, and if you know the um, 401 Richmond building, um, you walk down a, an awfully long hallway before you get to Gallery 44, but you can see off to the side um, their vitrines. And from that distance, it looked like a 20-something perfume ad, which I really want, was going for. Um, I liked the idea of a double reading. I liked the idea that the audience assumed what they were going to see. Um, and then when they got close to it, um, the hallway narrowed um, phenomenally, so that you're pretty much right on top of these um, images as, as the audience becomes aware of how visceral they actually are. Um, and so the reading of the work really changes. 
that is indeed beauty at the proper distance. That is, in fact, where I first saw the work, and you really could not get, get far away. You are very confronted by these works. And very purposefully, we actually placed these as the very first work that you see as you walk in so that there can be no misunderstanding of what's going to take place as you journey through and Susie Lake is introduced to you. The exhibition is called Introducing Susie Lake. It took Susie a little bit of time to get used to the idea. And I think someone called it cheeky or ironic. But in fact, uh, Sophie and Michelle and I at the time took it very, very seriously. We do believe that the exhibition is actually about that negotiation of the self as it makes its way through society and culture and politics and gender and race and all of the strings that are pulled at us. So what you will notice as you're moving through the exhibition is that it really is Susie from six to 66. But what we wanted to do today is talk about that one decade in her work that is actually not upstairs, that's not the exhibition. And we want to talk about this decade primarily because for some people it may appear as though it may not necessarily dovetail through the rest of her career. So, Sophie, may you press the button? Oh, Sophie, press the button. This is why there's two of us. <laughs> so I had wondered, Susie, if you wanted to talk about the way in which you see this work connected to the work that perhaps is much more commonly associated with you? Um, well, this work um, was done um, in support of the land claim in Tomogamy um, in um, the late 1980s. Um, and where I actually think that it's very pertinent goes back to um, my days back in Detroit where I was working human rights and, and civil rights. Um, Tomogamy is a very, very special place. Um, and my husband Bob and I would go and uh, up there and camp on a regular basis. It's a beautiful, beautiful area of the country. Um, the interesting thing is that um, I, I learned from all my friends is that um, that, that land was never surrendered. Um, so it's not part of the Robinson-Huron Treaty, and it wasn't part of the James Bay Treaty. And they were fighting, actually, to hold on to their homeland. Um, so um, I started actually helping them with posters and, and, and doing things as an activist will do. Um, and then we spoke about how perhaps fact that I'm living in Toronto, that I could bring their story to the big city, um, because at that point they felt that the Tomogamy Wilderness Society was appropriating their voice. Certainly it's a braided situation. So uh, in terms of my artwork and, and, and asking questions, um, I'm, I make work really to kind of figure out how I can come to terms with the world. So oftentimes that winds up being an um an unbraiding of like complicated issues. And the complicated issues up there were the investments and power dynamics, you know, of um, the um, um, uh, hydro, um, the Ontario government and um, um, the loggers, 
Um, and, but um, historically, this was their land. So how do you, so just to kind of ask the question a different way. So we have this on the one hand and we have this on the other. How do you, how do you reconcile those two? Um, what's in common? Well, I'm, I mean, um, certainly it's it's an underrepresented group. Certainly, you know, there's a there's a power dynamic that isn't balanced. Um, the exhibition actually was broken up into three areas: um, um, two older men playing chess in front of a manicured forest. Um, my friends from the reservation um, being photographed in, you know, their homeland, um, and it was a collage. And then because you see the shadow um, on the floor, the images that you don't see are, are people dressed up um, uh, where, where I've made cut-out um, two-dimensional figures that I've actually placed in the landscape to look like they're actual people. Um, uh, and they're staring at, you know, um, at the um, uh, properties or the idea of properties um, with binoculars. Um, I'm not sure how I can really resolve that other than the cheeky way to say, oh, well, there's 10, 12 years in between. Um, but I do, I do believe that, you know, there's a politicization in all my work. Um, I know that I'll use more poetic strategies so that I can have a dialogue with um, a larger audience. Um, but I think that even in the, the Tomogamy project, the idea was to make it um, a presentation or a dialogue to actually inform people in terms of the politic that was actually going on. Susie Lake was actually very generous a couple of years ago, beyond the regular generosity that Susie Lake has, and she actually donated her archives, her artist archives, to the Art Gallery of Ontario. And this is an image that is now available to everyone to be able to search, so we do believe that having access to artist materials and the way in which artists think is really important part of what we do, and it's all connected to the exhibition. We pulled this particular image, and Susie can address exactly what it is, because I was thinking about the ongoing question that you have, which is about whose gaze is it? So who is here looking through the binoculars? Um, well, that's Ronald Reagan when um, he was <laughs> in Korea with um, uh, um, Prime Minister Mulroney. Um, and um, the, the binoculars, the idea of the gaze, goes beyond gaze to the idea of surveillance. Um, th both of them, you know, are, again, you know, um, a dynamic, um, a power dynamic that, gee, I sound like a broken record. Um, uh, and really, the, um, the Reagan picture um, triggered off a lot of my work in the um, 1980s uh, where I went to um, Nicaragua and I photographed down there um, and uh, 
it also is um, the image that I was, you know, very much interested in carrying forward in the Tomogamy Project, the idea of not just surveillance, but, you know, the agenda of appropriation um, through the surveillance. So I mentioned there was this decade in which, in which uh, Susie stepped away from in front of the camera. But the last work that she made, or last series of works that she made before she did that, was this, which was uh, in your new house. This is what people do to their new houses in Toronto <laughs> to make more room. And uh, interestingly, and perhaps symbolically, with uh, a sledgehammer that was a gift from Donica, your daughter, for Mother's Day. Susie, you've been living in Toronto since 1978. This has been your home. You've recently become a Canadian citizen this past January. But when you arrived in Toronto and you made this series of work, which was incredibly successful right away, all 12 sold right away. In fact, some of them we don't know where they are. So if you've seen one of these in people's homes, please let us know. We're tracking them down. Toronto in the early 1980s was quite different from Toronto today. Do you want to talk about how you understood your work, in particular this series, as fitting into that scene in the early 1980s? Oh, um, that <laughs> that's a little bit more of a complicated question than I anticipated. Um, uh, when, I, when I first came to Toronto, it was actually the photographic community, um, Toronto Photographers Workshop that um, uh, welcomed me with open arms, which was the antithesis of how photographers in Montreal felt about my work um, when I left. Montreal at that time having, you know, very distinct split between conceptual photography and documentary photography. Um, which wasn't the case um, as I, I moved into the photographic community in Toronto. Um, what I think that um, that experience offered me was the, um, their generosity of conversation and talking about artwork um, uh, deepened my appreciation for the inherent qualities of, of photography. Um, I've always used inherent qualities of um, uh, formal, formal vocabulary, um, materiality, um, and, and whatever media that I'm using. Um, but they certainly, you know, gave me a real insight and excitement and deepened my education for photography. Um, in this work, the interesting thing in terms of like the dichotomy between conceptual art and, and photography is that when I um, photographed this series after painting my living room Chinese lacquer red, <coughs> promising everyone in the family that I would take it down, um, is that, you know, I had a potentially very exciting image you know, about a figure going through an act of release. But it really was, for me, just a document. Um, it only recorded, like, the act of acting out. And I felt really for my interest in having my audience understand what that feels like, 
um, it was necessary to um, provide a context of why the figure actually needed some kind of release from either a physical confinement, a psychological confinement, or a political confinement. Um, and so I built the frame out of two by four lumber so that it would appear more like a box than a frame, so just by the virtue of the bulkiness. Um, and I put the photograph, um, I kind of really enjoy the fact that I'm, I'm a pretty good carpenter. And um, I, I dadoed um, the groove for the, uh, for the photograph to go into on an angle. So it actually leans back um, as though the figure has been effective um, in moving the wall away. And then I painted the frame with traditional glaze painting techniques, um, given that I was really trained as a um, painter printmaker, and um, I picked up photography from books and friends and my technicians that are here. <laughs> so. Well, your love of drawing and painting comes through throughout your career, but I think in particular in this series where not only do you make these incredibly large-scale photographs and then build these boxes, but you also make equally large drawings of them, and you talk about that kind of meditative work that you enjoy doing when you are drawing exactly this image with, you know, large, huge piece of paper. One of the things that is a highlight in the documentary that was made about Susie, Annette Mangard made a beautiful documentary called Susie Lake Playing with Time. And in it, Lisa Steele, who uh, you might know, talks about inviting Susie to do a project for A Space based on the pre-resolution series. So what happened when you submitted <laughs> this image, which is also in the archives, to the uh, TTC committee. This was supposed to be on a bus shelter. Um, well, it was, you know, artists organizing um, a, a public exhibition. Um, what you see now is, is pretty much the prototype, the, the first run-through of um, pre-resolution and on a different wall in the home. And um, so I thought, oh, okay, well, um, I will uh, print this in black and white and do some hand coloring. <coughs> and um, I'm, I mean, the, the exhibition was already set. I was already invited. Um, it was just a matter of the, the TTC needing to see the work before they installed it to make sure there was no problem. Well, I was a problem. <laughs> um, where you see like uh, the almost dark window type of things um, um, in the wall, I, on the back side of like the print, I actually painted it with an opaque, so at um, photographic opaque. So at night when the bus shelter is lit up, the thing is, the, the black would be like a deeper hole um, and create that, create that illusion of, you know, um, the, the demolition. Well, the TTC 
saw it the same way, but they were a little bit more nervous about illusion and perception than I was. Um, and so I was eliminated from the presentation. Um, the organizers, which I think it was, I think it was Eldon Garnett, finally convinced them to put the piece in the bus shelter, and I was thrilled. What were they afraid of? Oh, they, they, oh, sorry, um, that was the point, right? Um, they were afraid that um, I was, in fact, inviting violence. And with the illusions that I had done to emphasize the figure, um, and I am wielding um, a crowbar, not a sledgehammer, um, so, I mean, it, it, it has a little different sense of immediacy. And like the black um, areas um, in the wall um, gave it a sense of space. They, they, they really felt that the general public would respond and, and destroy the bus <laughs> Imagine such power. <laughs> So just, um, we're going to go, take a look at the work that kind of announces your arrival in Toronto, which is just uh, about five years before this. And uh, this is just a little sneak peek at what you might find on the fourth floor. This is the first time since the early 1980s that this piece has been put on view. Uh, there are 88 components that form the piece, Are You Talking to Me, from 1979. What you're looking at here is an installation uh, view of it uh, in its first incarnation at the Sable Castelli Gallery. Um, Susie, will you tell us about the genesis of this piece? Um, well, the um, work that had preceded it was... Um, the impositions body of work um, that you'll see upstairs as well, and the puppet work, um, uh, where I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested in, you know, the, the control that um, comes from someone else. And the work afterwards is the bashing down wall work, which talks about um, taking control. Um, so sandwiched in there is Are You Talking to Me? And I had seen the uh, movie Taxi Driver uh, and uh, thought that it was a brilliant film. But, of course, anyone that, that may have seen that film, and I think it's 1976, okay. um, will remember the point where Robert De Niro... Um, who's losing his grip with reality and, you know, contemplating homicide and um, talk about, you know, um, being a social critic, uh, kind of going to the extreme about it. And um, he's in the washroom and he does that scene. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? 
I don't see anybody else here. Are you talking to me? And in, in the cinema back in those days when 600 people would be in, in the movie theater, you know, um, I felt that, you know, um, De Niro had just stepped right off the screen and was addressing me and almost putting his nose onto my nose. And, and, and everyone, uh, uh, the other 599 people in the same cinema felt the same thing. And all my work actually is interested in, um, I mean, I, my aesthetic is based on performance, and I happen to um, um, put my work in the form of photography, but it's about performance and audience-performer relationships and the information that I'm looking for. I want the audience to kind of understand and trigger like their own experience to these issues. And that piece of film did it beyond anything that I had ever, ever seen before. And I thought, wow, um, how can, you know, I mean, how could I ever do something like that? And then as I was kind of going through life, um, I, I realized that there are those, uh, you know, opportunities where you are implicated um, to respond to someone who is asking for help, but you can't help them. And my particular experience was Margaret stand, you know, going um, at 7 o'clock in the morning to the um, uh, bus depot to go out to Guelph to teach. At 7 o'clock in the morning or 6.30 in the morning, um, there are a lot of street people um, and somehow it looked like I had a sign on my head saying, here's a Girl Scout, she'll listen to any story. Um, and so people would actually approach me the way that, with the frequency that you, you know, panhandlers approach for money on the street. And the thing is, it's like they do have a sad story and they are asking for help. But the thing is, it's like there is nothing that you can do to help. And... That, you know, experience um, combined with seeing the film gave me some ideas about trying to recreate that for a visual art audience. <coughs> so I proceeded to actually go into the studio and record myself talking about something, which isn't important what it was, anything um, that was bothering me. Um, where we all go through this, that if we focus on the irritation, okay, um, without, you know, stopping, then the irritation becomes a bruise. And then the bruise becomes a scab. And then we pick the scab, and then we kind of lose track of reality because we're so focused on the irritant that it's blown completely out of proportion. And I wanted to photograph myself going through that experience to parallel what happened in the bus depot or parallel Travis Bickle in the film. Um, and I looked at the photographs, and um, uh, they weren't quite enough. And I uh, talk about performance. 
So I'm looking at the photographs and trying to figure out what's, what's the difference, what is missing from what my experience was to what I'm reading in the image. So I heated and stretched some of the negatives, which photographers would cross the street before acknowledging that I was a photographer to, to abuse a negative like that. And it would give me um, like a different shape of the image, plus the figure felt like it was tampered with. <coughs> and I looked at them, and I arranged them all registered at the mouth, because the mouth was the constant. And I was trying to talk to an audience. Um, and it, something was missing. It needed, you know, like every so often, it needed to kind of build to a pitch. And then I chose individual photographs to um, bleach out areas and then um, repaint them with traditional glaze painting techniques that they sort of looked like a color photograph. Um, but then putting them next to the black and white photographs, there was a bit of a rupture because you could tell that it was a different medium. So I then photographed the colored paintings and put them side by side. So it created a rhythm that was about as frenetic as the experience that I was going through or that De Niro may have reflected upon when he looked at that scene in the dailies. Another detail, and uh, here we see Susie in action painting actually one of the color images. Uh, one of the lines that this is another thing from the archives, um, but I love the line in this text. And forgive me for leaning forward because I'm going to read it here from the from the uh, text. It says, "I want to break down the distance between object and audience to extend the act of looking to include a more direct act of experiencing, making, and discovering." I think that piece really. Um, well, stretches in all of those ways, for sure. So here we are again, another installation view. This time we're back in Montreal. So we've leapt uh, from Toronto back to Montreal. This is Gallery Optica, and you talked about photographers in Montreal not really embracing you, although there was a curator who did. Uh, his name was Bill Ewing, and Bill Ewing put together this show in 1977 at Gallery Optica, which was, for the most part, a photography gallery. They showed Courtege, they showed um, any number of other kind of big masters, I would say, from the history of photography. But occasionally, he would put on a show like this one. Can you talk about what it meant to show in a photography gallery in Montreal in 1977, and talk about your choices for how you displayed the work? Um, well, I... Um uh, was invited to actually show this work at Optica Gallery. So it wasn't an application. Um, so it wasn't actually uh, in any form of um, feeling an obligation to be more photographic. I, um, in, in Montreal at the time, the, the, the galleries were really quite small. So it really gave me the opportunity to work on a scale in 1976 and 1977 uh, that, that, that I wanted to work with. Um, so you see the um, photographs, choreographed puppet photographs. But again, I was very interested to have the audience understand what it was 
like, the experience was like, um, and the, um, as the puppet in the work, so I made a large mural out of six sections because you couldn't get a photograph any bigger um, back in those days. And we wallpapered it to the wall at the end so that it was about 10 feet by 12 feet to parallel the scale of the puppet stand that I photographed um, myself in. Um, we also, at the other end of the gallery, um, uh, brought in, we, we reconstructed the puppet stand um, in, in the gallery at the opposite end, and then there were the photographs on the two sides of the wall going down. So I, um, I, I, I took liberties to um, go ahead and install the way that I wanted as opposed to worrying about photographic. Now, Bill actually loved this body of work, and he did put um, this work into um, his first major exhibition at ICP in New York City um, when he was hired as a curator there, and he was taking me through the gallery to show me the exhibition. It was the show on dance photography. And as we were coming up the stairs, I could hear Cornell Kappa in the room that um, my work was hanging in. And I rounded the corner just as he's talking about my work. Now, he's the one that was worried about whether it was photography or not. And he was saying to a patron, and this, this is not photography. <laughs> What I find actually quite amazing about Korgoff puppets is that we must all remember that this was her thesis work. This is graduate work that Susie was doing for her MFA at Concordia University. But the work that really took her and really got her known internationally, both in Europe and in the United States, is this work, a genuine simulation of and you had several goes at it, right? You were trying all kinds of color photography. This is very early, 1973, 1974. This is the work that you showed at Basel. <coughs> this is the work that's reproduced on the cover of camera art. This is the work that's reproduced in flash art. And you were, when you were making the work for you, it was all about conceptual strategies. That's how you talk about it. And it's only really in retrospect that you were kind of thinking about how gendered the work is. Can you talk a little bit about how complicated or how fun it was to be an artist and a woman in the early 1970s? Um, well, um, I mean, that's, that's a complex question in and of itself. Um, because certainly with all the social change and political change that happened in the 60s, um, women, you know, were were given opportunities that they didn't have a decade earlier, um, only to actually find that there was a glass ceiling um, uh, as, as you were working and bumping against it. Um, so uh, when, when, I, when I did this work, um, I was very much interested in issues of identity, role-playing, um, and... Um, the representation, you know, of women, um, because I was a woman, but I didn't want to close down the discussion to men. 
Um, so I thought that using makeup was the, uh, you know, opportunity um, to use the device of the mask to hide behind or to reveal. Um, in, in this particular work, um, I chose a storyboard which would reveal a concept in time but not necessarily elaborate a story over time. Um, because I wasn't a character, I was the artist, the author, actually performing um, the application of white face, which in mime means zero. It's before character. So movement or animation actually develops the character. It also, you know, in terms of fem feminism, was a perfect tabula rasa um, to begin. So um, the storyboard has white face, and then after the white face is applied, I apply traditional women's makeup on, on top of the white face um, and, and proceed with how I would have, you know, put makeup on if I was going to a fancy event. Um, but the two layers of, of makeup actually provided the illusion that it was so thick, it was like a mask. Um, and I chose the title because it was almost like I'm imitating myself. I'm, I'm mimicking myself, a genuine simulation of. So now we're all the way back at the beginning already. It's a very quick trip back in time. Uh, this is the work on stage made uh, between sort of reworked three times between 1972 and 1974. This is, in fact, the first work where you use yourself as a model. Um, can you, and it, and it exists, um, your, fir your, fir your first iteration of it was as a slideshow full with slide projector and screen. Can you tell us, uh, you, know, you, you have several times sort of made use of the latest technology. We have to remember that in 1972, the slideshow was the latest technology. Um, can you tell us why you chose to work with the slideshow format? Um, well, in terms of um, having a proliferation of images, um, to have a number of images of me mimicking um, fashion magazines, um, I needed a format where, you know, it, it would be um, a large number, a collection of, of, of images rather than just an image to, you know, represent something. Um, and uh, I had thought about storyboards, but the idea of a time base um, in terms of a slideshow seemed to be far more appropriate because I did know firsthand from my uncle's advertising company that um, the men not unlike what you see in the TV show Mad Men, would sit around the table and look at photographs of the different models that they were going to choose, and they would talk about them in offensively chauvinistic terms um, in front of their secretaries, in front of their visitors, like me, that may have learned to have gone into advertising, this would have done, you know, um, gone against it. So, um, so if I was going to actually um, invert the representation of women, which out of the 50s and 60s would be this very demure 
um, sweet young thing that you would see in Seventeen magazine, um, and why we would want to invert it, if not just for social change and political change, but for women, the political change was definitely there when the guys would be looking at these models and saying, oh, I like the one with the big ass over here sitting on the hood of that 65 Mustang, or give me some flesh, baby, you know. I mean, that is, that is actually so offensive. So I thought, well, I mean, that's a really good reason to invert that imposition on us because we're a generation of women that no longer wanted to be represented that way anyway. I have two other stills here from the same work uh, because, in fact, people didn't quite get it at first. They thought, oh, well, uh, I, I sort of hear some ideas, but wow, you look really great. <laughs> um, so you were well, it, a second it, There was time. accusations of narcissism as opposed, as opposed to looking great. It was <laughs> I, I was being a bit, uh, yes, cheeky. Um, so you reworked it a second time. You added some text. Did they did they get it then? Um, not really. <laughs> and how about now? <laughs> you add a, an well, image of by then they, they said, "Oh, I already saw it in two other iterations." You know, let's just let's just move on to the next group. Um, so it was really only years later that um, I was asked to bring this work forward um, and. Um, it, it really was about 10 years after I did the work that um, people could read what I was doing or what I wanted to do in the work. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's been a long time coming. Um, Sophie and I have been able to ask Susie many, many questions, and we are thrilled that finally we get to share it with all of you. So before we take a couple of questions from the audience, we wanted to end with this work last summer. Susie and I were able to go to the DIA, and Susie was able to stand for a whole hour in the Rivera Court part of her extended breathing series. It was a real coming home for you, Susie, wasn't it? Oh, um, it definitely was. Um, I um, grew up in Detroit. Um, my grandfather took me to the Detroit Art Institute when I was very young. I lost my grandfather when he was seven, and yet I still remember all the times that he took me. Um, and actually standing in the Rivera frescoes, I, I now can actually stand with my arms at my side because my, my strongest impulse is when I first saw them, I was holding his hand at, at the age of about four, like this. Um, my grandfather would also, um, uh, he was a referential metal contractor, and when he was working in the neighborhood in the 1930s, as an amateur painter, he was quite familiar with the Art Institute, he would go and watch Rivera paint these frescoes. What a magical legacy to pass on. Um, uh, so to actually have the opportunity to perform in the frescoes was not just an extension or another public place to um, perform the extended breathing project. Um, in in this particular place, it was it was coming home. So, would anyone like to ask Susie a question? Kathleen, you have the microphone. 
that thumbs up. That was good. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, I um, the question was, why did you wait until 20, 2014 to become a Canadian citizen? Um, <laughs> when I went to get my um, certification, the judge teased me about that as well. Um, and I, I was crying and um, when I went to go get my paper and well, walked up to get it and she said, have you been crying 46 years? <laughs> um, when I came to Canada, I was a draft dodger. Um, and I came to Montreal under the Napoleonic Code, which is another story. Um, that chapter on feminism is quite interesting. Um, but I didn't... Um, I, I wanted to become a Canadian citizen, and in the early 70s, I tried to become a Canadian citizen at the time that um, my American citizenship would, would be revoked. Um, in order to keep, um, back then, in order to keep my American citizenship, I would have had to make a phenomenal donation to um, a congressman's personal office, not to Congress, but his personal office, um, to have him stand up in Congress and um, announce that as an act of Congress I could be a dual national citizen. Um, so by the time that I came to Toronto, uh, I, um, the laws had changed and I could, could be a dual national. By then I was um, a mother and I was commuting from Toronto out to Guelph, uh, teaching every day. Um, I, I was just busy, and so I didn't fill out the paperwork. But I felt that this was my country, um, and I felt that it was important to put my money where my mouth was. So I actually worked for uh, uh, the political parties during election time. I was quite active. Uh, so finally, when I retired, it was just like, oh, I have time to do this. <laughs> question is just uh, to Susie to, add, to say a little bit more about the series Extended Breathing. Um, sorry, I actually responded to the, their question um, uh, thinking, oh yeah, they're going to go upstairs and they're going to see this work. Um, I was very much interested in, in performing um, like some of the very early performances that I did in the very early 70s. Something very, very, very simple, something very, very, very discreet. And as an older woman, um, I wanted to photograph uh, the experience of celebrating the body by virtue of simple things such as breathing. Um, and you'll see several iterations of that upstairs where it's done both privately and then I've moved into public um, arenas to amplify the, the, the sense of time that's going on that I'm standing there. Um, to begin Susie, with, it started out as, as an endurance project where I was standing as perfectly still as possible for an hour, which, um, and, and I calculated my camera to actually record 
an hour-long exposure, and it revealed how much movement the top of my body was, whereas my feet were crystal clear. Um, in the Rivera frescoes, um, the museum people were, were fabulous. They put signage up to encourage you know, guests that, uh, at, at the um, museum if they wanted to be in the performance, they would actually have to be standing there for 20 minutes to be recorded because of such a long exposure. Um, in the catalog, you'll see how many people, in fact, were in that spot and how they disappeared um, because of the long exposure. There are actually two. There's a wonderful documentary that's been made about you and your work called Susie Lake Playing with Time that Annette Mangard made, and there'll be a screening uh, later this month on November 21st. It's also on in the show, but my point is there are actually two wonderful moments uh, in that documentary around this series. One is watching you come out of a one-hour performance, and actually out of that I see how much what – what it takes to stand there because your hips are basically locked and you have to kind of learn to walk again as you come out of uh, out of this one hour performance but with this piece specifically the thing i love is uh there's a shot of your of your face and you are looking you have you have because of course in front of susie behind susie we see one fresco but in front of susie is a whole other fresco and you see Susie looking and looking and looking. Your eyes are darting around. Um, and, of course, it's, yeah, it brought home how active, how active it is still to be standing there for one hour. Though you are standing still, you are actively holding yourself still, and yet your eyes had so much room to wander. And it was a really wonderful kind of realization of what it takes to stand there. Other questions? You know what? Sadly, okay? we are at time, so I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank Susie and Georgiana and Sophie. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.